0: So uh, to just remind ourselves again where, uh, where we are in the biblical narrative. Uh, so we're in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So this is way before the time of Jesus, right? Uh, we just saw the exodus. So, you know, let my people go, parting of the Red Sea, walking across, right? Uh, and then the Egyptians tried to recapture their runaway slaves. The sea closed in on them. They drowned, etc., eliminating the military threat, chasing them, and thus freeing up the Israelites to go and figure out what's up next. And Moses was the leader of this uh, of the Exodus experience, and so he's in charge here. And so they crossed the Red Sea into, as we heard, a desert, a wilderness. And once they reached the desert, they wandered around for 40 years. Well, okay, so not exactly accurate. So they wandered, and then they camped for like a, Several years, and then they wandered again, and then they camped for several years, and then etc. Repeat, and uh, for forty years. And as we heard, they didn't exactly have the best attitude around this this whole thing, right? So basically, as soon as they reached the wilderness, they just started grumbling. Right? Oh man, why do we have to do this? You know? Right? And they were like, we're going to die. It's hot. It's sandy. I just want to go home. She keeps poking me. Right? (laughs) Never heard that before, right? Um, So, but remember where home was, right? Home was Egypt. So, A, not a whole lot less hot or sandy. But more to the point, they were slaves back there. And they wanted to go back to that. At least if we went back to slavery, we'd have enough food to eat. Right? Even though Moses, even though through Moses, God liberated those slaves, they still wanted to go back. And so remember, and, and we can't lose track of this when we're thinking about this story. We are talking about escaped slaves. We are talking about runaway slaves. We cannot lose sight of that. And so, let's back up for a second and talk about the psychology of slavery, right? So, one of the major things that the Israelites, as newly freed slaves, would have had to try and deal with was this learned sense of inferiority, right? Remember, this generation never known anything besides slavery, right? They'd they'd grown up, with it. And they, so they've gotten all these different messages from Egypt, right? All these different messages that they've taken into themselves and internalized and, and maybe even started to believe some, right? And so one of the major messages that their society told them was their objectification, right? And this society, as well as many other slave owning societies, slaves became objects, they were property. Right? They were not fully human subject in the same way as like me or you, right? They're, it's uh, slavery inherently removes that human subjectivity, that human personhood, right? It, you no longer are you in your full complexity. You can't be you, but you're flattened to your to your utility, right? To the worth of your labor, and you become a calculation, right? Uh, uh, is it worth keeping them around for the amount we have to pay for food and, and clothing versus the amount we get in free labor, right? It's a calculation. And so it is with the Israelites and Pharaoh, right? You are, you are your productivity as a slave. It is literally dehumanizing. You are no longer a human, right? You are the accretion of your productivity. Make more bricks. Meet a better quota, right? Literally, you are not a human subject, you've become an object. Or maybe, rather, your personification of your quota, you are instead 25 bricks an hour. Now, one part of this objectification that's going on is that slavery is this type of social death. And so slavery involved these real and legal and ideological severing of ties, of kinship and familial ties, of of any legitimate existence in this social order. And so if relationships and culture, which is relationships on a societal level, so if relationships and culture are what makes one human, then slavery in severing those ties makes you inhuman, it makes you suffer this social death. And and so that's what we pick on to pick up on in today's section of the Bible. The Israelites are socially dead. They need to learn relationship, how to be neighbors because the institution of slavery forcibly cut that off for them. And so we see for example them wandering around the wilderness and they reach Mount Sinai where they receive the Torah, the law, the teachings from God. And Moses goes up the mountain and receives it and Ten Commandments and all that good stuff. We have a ragtag band of runaway slaves wandering around the desert, stumbling in onto this mountain, this, this Axis Mundi, this, this connection between heaven and earth, right? And, and this sign of encounter with the divine. And this encounter with the divine starts this process of learning a new way of being, Learning to see yourself as a subject, not an object, a person, not a thing. Those relationships that have been severed in that social death, this, this encounter begins the process of restoring those relationships, of learning what it means to be a neighbor, of learning how to be in right relationship with one another. And so here on Mount Sinai, the Israelites received the Torah, the teaching, the law which will help them learn how to be community and be neighbors to one another. And so out of the first thing out of the gate, 10 commandments, the very first aspect of this revelation at Sinai, the first thing we hear is, I, God, I busted you out of slavery. It's embedded into their consciousness. It undergirds the entire stuff that Moses is getting from God. It's, I rescued you from slavery. It undergirds everything about their life and the way they do society, even, even the whole boring legal code, right? It's laws, woo who cares? It's still this narrative underlying it of, I rescued you out from slavery. Here's how we try and heal from it. And so, after this reminder, Moses on Mount Sinai gets these ten commandments, right? These ten foundational rules of that, that show the Israelites ways of embodying this new way of being. After having internalized these inferiority messages from Pharaoh and slavery, and these rules start to teach the Israelites a new way of becoming, uh, of understanding oneself. Because remember, right? Pharaoh understood them as objects. They're not human subjects. They're their productivity, basically. But they're not slaves anymore, are they? They're not slaves anymore. And so at Sinai, God begins this fundamental shift in how they see the world. God, here's what God does. God swaps Pharaoh as this bad, evil master, right? As this slave-owning master. God swaps Pharaoh out for God, a good benevolent worthy master right god works within that mental framework they learned as slaves this idea of the master and the subject and god works within that framework to teach them a new way of being using that conceptual category of master to shift these powerful narratives they've internalized right and so god as their new worthy good master gives these rules these concrete lived practical ways to start living differently. So for example, take the Sabbath, right? Six days you must work, one day you must rest. Straightforward enough. Under Pharaoh, as a slave, you don't rest. You never rest, right? You work from sunup to sundown seven days a week. And you work hard to meet those quotas so that you don't get brutalized. Right. Under Pharaoh, you do not rest. And then along comes, you must rest on the seventh day. Under Pharaoh, you never rest, but then God comes in and mandates that you learn this new way of being with rest at the core, rest built into the structure of how your life is set up. This isn't just a, you know, we want to keep you from burning out sort of rest, right? But it's rest as this essential fabric of the cosmos, there from the very beginning, the creation. And so for, God, for humans to be a wholesome part of the cosmos, to be in right relationship with God and their world and each other, we must rest, and then, after they received the law at Mount Sinai, the Israelites right begin wandering around the desert for forty years, as we heard, right? And they don't have food; they don't got no food. So God miraculously provides them some food, right? Quails and manna, this sort of breadish substance, something or other, who knows? But but it magically appeared each morning, basically. And you went out and you collect in the morning your food for that day. But God was very particular because this was teaching. Day after day, meal after meal, this was teaching. God was like, all right, we got very specific instructions. You don't go around hoarding this stuff. You can only collect as much as you eat in one day. And then then the day before the Sabbath, when, remember, you're supposed to rest, we were very clear about that, you go ahead and get two days' worth so that you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And so the people learned every single day how to do this, how to trust God as a good, benevolent master who actually takes care of them. Now, of course, there were some people who tried to game the system, right? So they went out and they gather more. They try and hoard up the manna so that they, you know, have a security blanket, right? They have a nest egg, right? And every single time maggots got into it, ruined the whole thing. Or then there are some folks who are like, "Eh, I don't want to do twice the work on one day before the Sabbath. We'll, We'll just go out and collect on the Sabbath anyway. And then just magically nothing's there. They can't get food on the Sabbath. God's forcing them to live this new pattern of being that's based on trust, that's based on rest, that's based on getting out of their systems, those things they learned in slavery. Because they had to trust that God was going to really take care of them, unlike what Pharaoh did. God was teaching them how to live not as slaves. In a sense, in a very real sense, the wilderness was basically a detox center. They needed to purge themselves from the poison of slavery before they could move on forward to this new better way of being, of living. They, they needed purification because it's not just they were plopped out of slavery just into this brand new perfect context, right? Canaan, Israel, that they would eventually go to, the land of milk and honey. No, they needed 40 years of detox first to get that gunk out of their system to unlearn and relearn how to be human because of what they got way deep down in them. Right? Of healing. uh, Starting to become whole again after slavery had shattered the pieces of what it meant to be human. The wilderness was a place for them to start reforming. Coming back and gluing those pieces together again. Now Don't get me wrong. Uh, Detox and the wilderness. It is ultimately good, but it's not pleasant in the slightest, right? It it stinks to go through detox, right? And and so basically for the Israelites, we see this the whole time, all 40 years, probably every single day. They're just like, oh my gosh, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. Let's just go back. Because... It's really tempting to want to give up and go back when you're in the midst of it, because especially when you're in the throes of withdrawal, right? Especially when you're in the throes of withdrawal. It wasn't that bad, was it? It couldn't have been that bad. It wasn't that, it was tolerable, right? Maybe maybe it wasn't great, Ah, it was fine. Maybe we need to go back to that. You misremember things and why you escaped in the first place. And you just start wanting to give up and go back. They kept wanting to return to Egypt. At least we had good food, not this stupid quail and manna stuff. At least we had vegetables, right? And yet for all their grumbling, they did keep plugging away. Moses helped push them. He'd finally get them there. But that being said, This is ultimately not a very happy story. Ultimately, this is a tragedy. Because here's the thing. God had to make this decision about how the the whole people would start this new society, right? This new way of being, this brand new thing that's actually healthy and wholesome and working. But this whole generation, those runaway slaves that so thoroughly internalized that stuff from slavery, those messages from Pharaoh, that junk that they were trying to get out, they so thoroughly internalized it that they won't be able to get out of it. They won't be able to get clean and sober enough to actually start the new society because they don't, aren't going to be able to give it good enough DNA to get a good healthy start. So a new generation who never knew Egypt needs to be the ones who actually go and build the society. And so there's only two people from those runaway slaves who actually live to enter the promised land, to build that new society. The rest of the generation had to die out and leave the building of the future to their kids, to those who've never known Egypt, to those who've never known what slavery tastes like, who didn't get all that stuff way deep down in them? And to me, this is a heartrending tragedy, is it not? I mean, this wilderness, this new law code, puts them through detox and it rings out some of that slave identity that they've learned. But and they, and they God tries to fill it with this new identity, but it still just can't obliterate all of that old experience that they were forced to go through. And so they can't be the ones who provide the new healthy DNA for this new society. Even though it sucks to go through, the wilderness can be a place of healing and restoration from those damaging narratives That we internalize, and and right, I mean, and this is true, isn't this true for us too as well? Not just them, right? Sometimes we need to go to the wilderness to detox. Okay, fine. So, literally in the Pacific Northwest, right? We we know the value of a good camping trip to you know reset, you know. But but think about it on a metaphorical level. We often need to go to the wilderness. These there's these times that are rough, that are unpleasant, that are the world's falling apart. It's in that metaphorical wilderness that we start to see a little bit more clearly, that we start to get some of that gunk out of us, that we're like, oh, that's what I've been doing, that, that we have the time and the space to reset, that we try and get back in touch with our real selves rather than whatever self we've put forward and pretended for everybody else, or to try and get rid of those messages we've internalized the wilderness can help us reset all of that. And even though it sucks to go through the wilderness, it can be a place of healing, of becoming whole again. It's a place of great potential, a place of encounter with God uh, in, in a more immediate way. It's a place where you can heal from those damaging narratives that you've internalized. So like, for example, right, you can look at what the narratives are that have been drilled into us for modern Western capitalism, right? You are at core a consumer. You are a pocketbook, right? Buy this thing and your life will be complete. These narratives are drilled in our heads, right? And the wilderness can help us heal from them, to learn other narratives, God's narratives about us. You are a beloved child of God, you are of infinite worth. You aren't an object, but a complex, wonderful human subject. Right? The wilderness has so much potential to help us reevaluate who, in fact, we are, who we've been created to be, how we live our lives. May you discover what narratives you've been told that you got way deep down in your being. May you have the wisdom to evaluate whether or not they are worthy of the Christian life. And may you grow even in the midst of encountering the wilderness in your own lives. May it be so.